Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sneha Navarapu, the host of this channel. Today, I have the pleasure and honor of being in conversation with Kareem Kupchandani, the author of the exciting new book, Ishtayil, Accenting Gay Indian Nightlife. This book was published by the University of Michigan Press, and it dropped uh, like a month ago, less than a month ago. Either way, it's very, very hot off the press and has a really popping book cover, I might add. Kareem Kupchandani is Mellon Bridge Assistant Professor of Theatre, Dance and Performance Studies and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Tufts University. Welcome to the show, Kareem. So glad you could take time out to chat with me today. Thank you, Sneha. I'm super excited to be here. I love your scholarship and I, I feel really lucky to be in conversation with you. Well, let me congratulate you on your first book and what a book this is. Very few academic books are page turners, and this certainly is one of them. Um, wow. Some parts of the book, <laughs> some parts of the, of the book were actually so vivid that I felt like I was watching a film. So again, major congratulations! Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah. Well, I thought we could start off um, with getting to know you a little bit better. Uh, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your journey into academia. Sure. Um, so. Academia was never sort of a, an aspiration or a, a goal. It, was, it wasn't part of my life plan, I guess, when I was a younger person. Um, when I finished college, I, uh, well, during college, I was very scared to leave the sciences behind. I wanted to be a chemical engineer. And then I was like, well, I kind of, you know, I'm more of a humanities person. So let me go to psychology because it's still a science. Um, and then I went to education because it's, you know, a- applicable and there's a job that it would lead to. And I ended up as a sociology and anthropology major, but I still couldn't commit to the arts. And I ended up working as an administrator at a small liberal arts college. And just to pass the time, I would choreograph for the South Asian students there. Mm-hmm. And a, a performance studies professor there, Berta Hotar, she said to me, you know what you do is performance studies. Because I, I was making shows like I call them Legally Brown or Brokeback Bollywood. (laughs) Um, But she was seeing what I was doing and she said, you know, there's theory behind performance. And I I was like, I don't understand. And she said, well, you can go to school and figure it out. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, you know, I don't don't come from a family of academics. My parents, uh, one of my parents finished high school, the other didn't. so I didn't, I didn't have this familiarity with what academia entailed other than having gone to college myself. So, you know, I, I entered grad school just to learn more out of curiosity to, to think about Bollywood and queerness and nightlife. Um, and, and that's where the, the, the book comes out of my dissertation project. And I sort of ended up in academia by a happy accident and through someone's advice and, and a lot of mentoring and coaching and yeah, and I guess I hope that answers the question. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really interesting journey into academia. Um, 
if I may say so myself. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, from Bollywood choreography to, yeah. to writing a book, you know. Yeah, <laughs> that is that is very unique. It's the first that I've uh, heard of uh, something like this. Um, but I was hoping that uh, you could tell us how the book was conceived then, and what's the story of the book. So the 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 field site I had thought about writing about for the book when I when I wrote my application to graduate school was New York. In New York, there's a party called Desilicious, and it was the first time I'd gone to a queer Bollywood night when I was 19 years old. And I used to go to those parties often, and I was really moved by the the drag performances that happened there. And so that that even though I went to school in Chicago, I was I was thinking, okay, I'm going to be moving from middle of nowhere, New England to Chicago. And um, I will be surrounded by queer South Asians and there'll be a nightlife scene and that'll be the place. And there wasn't one when I got right. there. There was an organization just forming called Tricon and Tricon Chicago. It's sort of a franchise of, the, of a Bay Area organization. And with, and you know, they, they said, hey, we need to start a fundraiser to, because they were a brand new organization. I was like, yeah, let's throw a party like they do in New York. And they said, okay, you organize it. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> and we have to have drag drag queens. And I couldn't find one, so I became one. Um, right. I, at that first party, I just, I you know, I, I went to the closest uh, makeup store by my house and bought whatever I could. And I ended up, you know, in whiteface, basically. Um, <laughs> And bought, bought a cheap wig and, and did a did Bidi Jalaile and I did um, MIA's paper planes, you know, trying to appeal to multiple audiences. But but my what what came out of that was you know organizing the party, performing in drag really situated how I created a field site for me and and situated how I looked at the field from the position of the organizer and performer as opposed to an attendee as I, as I would have if I had been looking at Desilicious. Um, so that's, that's where one field site was sort of developed. But the other, the other thing that happened was when I started talking to my friends who were coming to these parties, they would say, you know, it's so great that we can do this and we can be here, we can be together and we can, and we can be in drag and have all this fun. And, uh, I'm, and of course, it's so sad they don't have that in India. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, I'm sure it's there. <laughs> um, and, you know, my parents live in Bangalore. They retired in Bangalore. And I, on visiting them, I've seen like on apps that there are ads, pe- people messaging me with ads about like a party or something like that. So I went right. to Bangalore and found that there's a really fantastic scene there. But what what finally emerged out of all of that, of moving across borders, was that I was running into some of the same people at the parties. Mm-hmm. I was actually, you know, I'd see them in Toronto and then I'd see them in Bombay or I'd see them in Hyderabad and I'd see them in Chicago. Or I'd be in Chicago and someone would say, hey, my roommate is actually coming to do a training there. Can you take him out? Um, so, so the book ended up being a, a transnational study of this global transnational global uh, professional class mm-hmm. and how queer men use nightlife as a place to explore politics, to be inside of politics, to rearrange aesthetics and politics simultaneously. Yeah, and uh, the book is, uh, for our listeners who may have not gotten a chance to read the book yet, the book is a rich ethnographic exploration of performances of cultural differences 
in gay nightlife spaces in Chicago, Bangalore, and other global cities, as Kareem has just um, told us uh, uh, himself. Uh, and very persuasively, you show how the nightlife is a productive window into how political economies um, live in and on the body. But before uh, we get into the meat of the chapters, uh, uh, let's start with the most pressing question of all, one that grounds your book conceptually. What does the title of the book mean? What is Ishtail? Ishtail, so it's a, it's a word I grew up hearing, and it's, it's basically accented style. You know, it's the way some people... Some Indian people would pronounce style, mm-hmm. um, and you know that might be in South India that might sound more like style or a style. Or right. so, so ish, style is is a sort of a Bombay version of that accenting, but it has its own currency, and it's and when we used it as kids, and and how it's used in public culture is to name that kind of excessive performance. Mm-hmm. Um, the the overexertion we make in order to achieve dominant style, global style, that kind of aspirational embodiment that we're supposed to have. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I'm thinking about style on its own terms as as a South Asian idiom to mean that excessive performance of modernity, but also thinking about it as accented style. So I can think about how the accent becomes a way of analyzing cultural difference across a number of scales, because our accents change when we move, you know, um, the same accent can signify um, a city, a region, a country, a continent, you know, it, it, so, so it, it becomes a, a scalar analytic to, to think about how cultural difference changes in context. So, you know, when, in one of the chapters, I'm thinking about South India as a region, um, but in another context, I'm thinking about in Indian, Indianness in the white spaces of gay neighborhoods in Chicago. So, so the accent allows me to think about how people perform their style in these different ways or how it comes to be. And, and, and the other thing is that the, the accent is, works both ways. It really is about performance. It's, you know, you, you do, you're not always conscious that you have one, mm-hmm. but um, other people hear it. They hear yeah. something in, inside your voice, right? So it becomes this way of thinking about performance and how meaning is actually constituted between people as opposed to, in, in sort of an ontological sense. Yeah. Um, so that, that's, that's how I could think about Ishtal is really on its own terms as the South Asian way of capturing the excesses of, of trying to be a modern subject that we see in Bollywood and Tollywood and Kollywood um, that, that we hear in terms like fobbiness, mm-hmm. but then also thinking about the accent uh, as a useful analytic across uh, regions and spaces. Yeah, that's really helpful. Uh, thank you. Um, uh, and, you know, uh, in the first chapter, you explore the category of the Indian techie in the context of uh, weekly Saturday night parties. And you already mentioned that you're looking at this transnational profess- professional class. Um, and you show uh, very beautifully how these weekly parties are implicated into the aspirational ethos of Silicon Valley-esque Bangalore um, and how the party planners in the landscape of software engineers and MNC workers try to create gay atmospheres that uh, mimic a certain 
hegemonic um, understanding of queer pleasures. Uh, but you also walk us through uh, repeated refusals by those who attend these parties and I guess how they perform these repeated refusals through Ishtail. Um, would you be open to sharing a couple of examples from uh, the chapter that capture these tensions in the every nightlife in Bangalore? Yeah, yeah, I, I love this question. So I, um, the the scene that opens the the chapter is a New Year's Eve party, and the flyer announces that they're going to be Go Go Boys wearing um, brand label underwear. <laughs> And of course, these you know at the party the 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 lights come on, and it's these horrible fluorescent lights. But they clear the stage of people dancing, and they bring bring on these straight, apparently supposedly straight men who mm-hmm. um, are wearing bathrobes, and they show off. They take off their bathrobes, and they they've got leopard print underwear on. But they're so nervous to be there, and. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, they're light-skinned and hairless and muscular and, you know, of course, what people want to see. Um, right. But they're so nervous and they just disappear off the stage very, very quickly. <laughs> and then seconds later, someone else, just a, a party attendee, runs out from the bathroom wearing a red women's bathing suit. And he's this dark-skinned, skinny person. Uh, and just... And and just the contrast of his of his femininity, his dark skin, his body not having that sort of um, muscular build, really stands in contrast, right? And and be, and it 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 brings into relief the the normativity that the Go Go Boys are trying to produce. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also the the song that's played right after that is it was the song Chikni Chameli had just been released and. People went wild for it, but all these like fat men got on stage, or, or fat and like non-muscular bodies got on stage, and some of them ripped their shirts open, you know, inspired by the Go Go Boys, but they didn't have those bodies, and just so just the ways that dark skin, fat fat bodies, feminine clothing accent the the and and come into friction with really the the. Um, the normative gay body was one of those moments. So that's at one end of the chapter. At the at the other end of the chapter uh, is a party that was uh, commemorating the the uh, the shooting in Orlando at Pulse nightclub during a Latinx night, and the party was titled "Love Is Love," and so "Love Is Love" is is the most mainstream way of, sort of performing gay rights. It's Lin Manuel Miranda saying, "Love is love is love." It's just it's so uh, wishy washy in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but they had said in in the invitation to that party that there will be a moment of silence, and the problem is that at this party there was no way to achieve a moment of silence because it was because of where the uh, where the party was, and because the the mic system was really bad, and because <laughs> at these parties the the DJs often overuse the mic, so people just are used to ignoring anything that someone on the mic is saying. So, right. <laughs> so again, this is one of those moments that it's supposed to look like that morning of of a that somber moment that mourns something that happened in the U.S., but. In this context, it just can't happen. And there's, uh, you know, while I was at that party, I opened a, I opened Grinder, and someone had 
a torso picture. Um, and again, it wasn't a muscular torso, but he had a torso picture and it, it said, V are all Orlando. Instead of W-E, it was the letter V, right? And again, that's the accent showing itself, right? He's performing his attachment to this global gay uh, sensibility, but the the slippage between we and V suggests that there's always an accent at play that doesn't allow for an, a smooth performance of that um, dominant um, cosmopolitan queerness. Yeah, that's that's so beautifully put. And um, I, I love that you gave us the two examples that really bookend the chapter and bring out the range of uh, the sorts of attachments and refusals at play. Um, so thanks for that. Um, chapter two, uh, which was, by the way, my favorite, shifts the focus from this uh, transnational imaginaries um, to the local and regional politics. Uh, the chapter very persuasively uh, decenters Section 377, the law that has often anchored um, legal conversation around uh, the queer Indian movement. In this chapter, instead, uh, you show uh, how the ban on social dance enforced in Bangalore from 2006 um, to 14 shaped nocturnal socialities. Um, could you share with our listeners how and why paying attention to the ban on social dancing uh, enhances our understanding of queer citizenship in India and beyond. Yeah, um, so I'll, I'll start with three seven seven very briefly, and and just say that you know the three seven seven is the the statute against sodomy that um, and that has been at the center of India's LGBT rights movement um, and has gotten the most publicity um, as activists and lawyers argued against uh, keeping it in in the penal code. But day to day, the way that LGBT life is policed, um, and specifically by the state, is through um, the healthcare system and or or when uh, and and who can get surgeries and who um, who is cared for by their their doctors. Um, and discriminated on because they have sex with people of the same gender, or it's through laws like um, harassment laws or public indecency laws. So there's an example of activists handing out um, flyers about safer sex, and they were accused of sexual harassment. Um, Mm. Or hijras are often accused of kidnapping when they take in uh, young people into their into their hijra kinship systems. So it's it's not necessarily through three seven seven, but it's through all these other um, lo- legal formations that LGBT people are policed. So so I think in general it's important to decenter three seven seven as the way we think about the relationship between law and LGBTQ subjects in India. Um, the ban on dancing was something that emerged out of Karnataka and, and Bangalore's specific anxiety around uh, um, the trafficking of women into dance bars. And, and it, it was a moral panic, and we understand that moral panics work on, um, work on discourse and not ne- necessarily on truth about people being trafficked um, it was. It was really. It, these were women who were migrating from different parts of India, uh, and 
into into Bangalore and and it created these anxieties around who are these women performing sexually for for men in public spaces like dance bars. Um, and so there was a, a ban on dancing instituted, a uh, ban on social dancing. So you can still go to concerts and such. Um, but that comes to affect gay men's access to pleasure. Um, but it also affects various kinds of sex workers and transgender dancers and cisgender women migrants. So, so moving to think about the ban on dance, instead of 377, suddenly puts gay men who love to party, who are, have, who are, who are getting a lot of pleasure and um, reparative joy from dancing, as I, I try to demonstrate across the book, um, it puts these, these gay men in the same bracket with these other vulnerable subjects. And 377 isn't able to do the same thing. <laughs> Um, and so we, we start to, you know, to, to use the sort of a, a, a common term, we start to think intersectionally um, <laughs> about who is made vulnerable by the state by thinking about dance. The other thing is that the other thing that is, this chapter is trying to do is think about the law as an aesthetic practice. And this is something I'm taking from Joshua Chambers Letson and his book, A Race So Different. But there are people deciding when we're dancing. So so dancing is not allowed at the nightclub, but the the bar owner may come over and tell someone to stop bopping their hips or just stop shaking their shoulders. So, So people become arbiters of... When people can become arbiters of what is dance, they suddenly become arbiters of the law. And, and so the aesthetics and law, I think, have a, a really important relationship that's staged through the ban on social dance because people can decide this is dance and this is not. And so I try to f- point to some of the ways that my interlocutors are working within these limits placed on their bodies to find pleasure um, and to be silly and to have a great time, um, but also always wrapping that story into, well, who else is affected by this, this law? And how can we think across more bodies, um, think about vulnerability across more bodies than just the gay men's claim to, um, to vulnerability? Yeah, um, thanks for that. I mean, I, I really enjoyed the chapter precisely because it does such a, it's such a refreshing take, um, I guess, on uh, law and, uh, and yeah, vulnerability as as you poignantly put it. Um, so uh, in the, the book is in three parts and the first two chapters are the first part and in the second part, you take us uh, through the gay neighborhoods in Chicago and you show us how uh, your interlocutors become desirable um, and in doing so, they complement and reify whiteness. Um, you show us how South Asians performing racialized labor seem to make desirable homonormative partners and Uh, You argue for the efficacy of thinking about oral narratives as performances. Um, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit what thinking about oral narratives, performances, and desirability uh, does to our understanding of interracial relations uh, and sexuality. Yeah. um, So broadly, that chapter is is insisting on the on thinking about performance in interracial desire. Um, in three in three ways. One is that is what Greg Mitchell has called performative labor. That w- in in enacting 
in trying to stage desire, in trying to be attractive, that we invoke uh, the the performativity of um, of of our race and, and racial difference. You know, we we tell people, oh, I, of course, I watch Bollywood in order for people to recognize that we. Mm-hmm are in fact Indian and we're the, the correct kind of Indian and we can we will be a good uh, attractive orient, oriental partner for for a nice white midwestern man you know so that's the sort of performative labor is that we're pulling on the force of history and and uh, symbolic meanings to stage our our desirability the, sec- the second is also thinking about spaces of desire as stages. So, and, and so thinking about what we stand around and with and whom, whom we're on stage with. So if a South Asian person is in the bar alone, they become racially ambiguous because they could be Latino or Arab or mixed race or, or, but if they're with other South Asians, if there are other bodies around us, suddenly the accent thickens. <laughs> and of course we're all Indian and so we must the we must be a certain way, right? So, so th- really thinking about the context in which the body is seen, and then lastly, I think about the oral narrative itself, and and this is where you know, I mean, I document so many moments where my interlocutors actually become undesirable. You know, someone smells like biryani, or uh, someone is assumed that they're going to they're not going to be a good partner because they'll be forced into an arranged marriage, but. If you actually listen to their stories, right, and if, and I print I print the um, their stories in in le- at length there because I think there's really a sense of hope in a lot of them there and and if not hope, there's always a sense of contradiction as well. So they'll critique the way South Asians behave, but then they'll also critique the way white white people behave, or they'll let their voice trail off to create some room for possibility as opposed to foreclosing. The fact that they might be under the, the the assumption that they might be undesirable. So I think just the the interviews in themselves are are doing a lot of work. And and you know, coming out of performance studies, we we understand that the interview is a performance. That it matters who's asking the question. That that you know they've gotten to know me. Um, mm-hmm. So people would say, "You remember that moment?" or uh, that we did that thing, but but I keep that in there to remind people that I've also developed a relationship with folks, um, such that they're telling me these stories because it's me. Yeah. 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 Maybe this is a good uh, moment then to perhaps ask you a question. I was going to ask you later, but uh, it is true that when I was reading the book, I was uh, struck by how. Um, how durable, how enduring these like field relationships uh, seemed, and how people opened up to you, uh, you know, with uh, with a lot of detail, a lot of honesty. And I was wondering if you could tell us how these fieldwork relationships emerged, and how uh, you were able to work with them, uh, with these people, and whether uh, they, whether you still hang out with them, whether you still talk to them. Um, yeah. Yes, yeah, so there's there's a moment in which I. Uh... In, in one of the chapters I write about uh, Bollywood actress Sri Devi and during the course of, or well after my field work, she passed away, but one of my interlocutors had really loves her. And when I landed back in India at one moment and I met up with this friend, he said, I can't believe, this is a year after Sri Devi's death, he said, I can't believe you didn't call me when she died. 
<laughs> no. But but he but the, the, this is this is that you know they are holding me accountable to the information that they've given me, um, yeah. and they know that I see how important these these figures are in their life. For example, mm-hmm. um, but but the way we built that kind of relationship was by dancing together, mm-hmm. and we when I went started fieldwork in India and and spent uh, a full year there, I was staying with my parents. I got involved with uh, an LGBT support group and Pride was coming up and they said, we want to dance and we heard you're a dancer. So this is that that anecdote about dancing at uh, when I was at my job so long ago. It comes right. back to haunt me. Uh, but they said, <laughs> we, we hear you're a dancer and you have to choreograph for us. And I put out a call on Facebook and we, we formed this group called the Pink Divas. And... So, so dancing in the field be- became this way of really getting to know the the divas that my friends like to listen to. They um, it gave me an understanding of their bodies in a particular way and the language with which they talked about their bodies. Um, so, and I didn't. One of the things I, I did was both in Bangalore and Chicago. I didn't do any interviews until I got to know people and until people knew who I was. Um, so I was, I was interviewing people I know. I didn't, I didn't send any cold emails saying, hey, I am a researcher. I would like to interview people who fall into this category. Right, um, yeah. So these were all folks that I knew and, and knew who I was, knew I had some kind of public persona as someone who made YouTube videos or did drag or danced or showed right. up at the parties. So they, they again, there, there was a set of, they, they spoke to me about dance or about, boys or about sex or any of those things because those are the spaces in which they saw me as well Mm -hmm. um in chicago where i performed in drag regularly drag was also this way of people coming up to me and saying i want to do it too right i became i became a mother to several uh of of the people i interviewed you know it's so we have these these intimate relationships um i became a drag mother to them i um i helped them with wigs and makeup and and so I really participated. And some, some of these friendships have been sustained. Some are, you know, just liking each other's pictures on Facebook. Um, some are still best friends. So it's, it's, a, it's a mix. But, but these, are, these are people who have stayed in my life, who I continue to offer advice to as, as a drag madam, I guess, a drag auntie in the community. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, as you were speaking, I was just thinking about, I, I've been working on these um, revise and resubmit edits, and uh, one of my reviewers was very angry that I don't have uh, numbers in my data and methods section. <laughs> 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 How long were your interviews? How did you, uh, what, what, what was your introductory email reading like? And as you were saying, I didn't cold email people with this uh, standard line. I was just, uh, I couldn't help but laugh in my head. But no, <laughs> thank you, thank you for that. And you know, speaking of uh, divas, uh, it, it's in chapter five, uh, also a favorite that you um, tell us how Bollywood queers us, and uh, you show us how your interlocutors relate to Bollywood divas Shri Devi and Madhuri on the dance floor, and how embodied reanimations of their songs and dances points to some kind of reparative labor performed by men have been disciplined into respect into what one might call respectable masculinities, whatever that means. Uh, I want you to uh, say a little bit uh, about this and also about how 
how understandings of respectability and aggressive femininity are and negotiated on the dance floor? You know, I I think that the dance floor is is a very disciplinary space, mm-hmm. and we're constantly asked to to not behave badly. I, I remember this moment. Uh, I was at a Desilicious party in New York, and I had recently come back from field work in Bangalore. And I was while I was there, I I've always had dreams of learning Kathak, and so I was taking classes and. Some song comes on at, at the party, and I start doing katak ch- chakras. And so, you know, you're extending your arms out from your body to do those dances. And I nicely went and knocked one of the bouncers in it, right in the stomach. Oh, my God. Um, and, you know, he's standing there on the dance floor, making sure no one's misbehaving. And I, I knocked him, and he literally grabbed my wrist and was dragging me out, and someone else grabbed my other hand, pulled me back into the crowd, and I disappeared into the crowd and got wow. to play at the party. But again, there's a, there's, there's a particular way you're supposed to dance at the party. Um, mm-hmm. And the music is often telling you that. Uh, and so, you know, if they're playing a song like Make Some Noise for the Desi Boys, you're supposed to have that weighted, masculine, muscular performance. And then, of course, the, the movie that it's from is, has given you a visual cue of how what your body is supposed to look like, how you're supposed to move alongside that kind of music. Yeah. Um, so, so what happens if if you've got these rooms full of men and you start playing these campy, nostalgic uh, songs of of the of eighties divas, um, and what kinds of movements might it elicit? Um, and 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 I, I make the argument that. These are the, for for people of the age of, that I'm interviewing. You know, between 25 and 35 at the time that I was doing these interviews, the they 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 were they were um, between 10 and 15 in 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 the 80s, and they were watching Madhuri Dixit and and Sri Devi on screen and mimicking them, but were often disciplined for those movements, and and then they enter into the workspace and they enter into the nightclub and again they're being disciplined for their movements and they're asked right. to be a certain kind of quote-unquote respectable masculinity right you're supposed to w- bring your body into public space in a very careful way in order to be desirable in order to not offend others but what happens when the refrain of one of Madhuri's songs comes on because it's not the song that they're going to play at the club but if they do play it, what happens? How are you allowed to return to particular kinds of memories that you can have uh, in be, hold in the body? Um, and so, so I work on this. I work on it at the, that individual level of people telling me stories about gender discipline, but also thinking about it at a political economic uh, level of of asking what was going on in the eight uh, as the eighties transitioned into the nineties. That how right. is dance changing? How is femininity changing? What were these young people seeing on screen that was actually unique to that very point? How are these gestures actually very unique to that very point of cinema making um, such that, that those are the gestures that they held on to? Those are the gestures that feel very exciting to bring back into the nightclub. Um, and, and what does that do? What frictions does that make um, when the nightclub aspires so much to, to masculinity? Uh, you know, people have asked me, why, don't, why is it not queer nightlife? And, and I'm like, because the, the spaces I write about uh, really privilege 
men and masculinity and and so it femininity actually can be quite aggressive in those spaces it can yeah. uh, manifest and do uh, as an accent right it comes into friction with the dominant um, understanding of what's supposed to happen in that space and can pr- um, produce new worlds and fabulate new kinds of experiences yeah um and i think in the chapter after you uh, delve into uh, the role of class region and caste in uh, performances um, on the in the nightclub but also performances of femininity, femininity and this um i guess this desire for what is called rawness mm-hmm. um could you speak a little bit about that Yeah, I, I think I'll, I'll actually still talk about Madhuri and Sri Devi. So the the yeah. and and maybe, but but think about it through those terms of rawness, caste, class, region. So when the the dances that stick right to their bodies are in fact regional and classed and da- dances. So Sri Devi is known for her snake dance, and that uh, that that dance form borrows from. that Saroj Khan choreographed for her borrows from belly dance, but it also uh, borrows from um, Adivasi uh, snake worship, snake worship, right? So there's a, there's an otherness to the dance form. (laughs) Similarly, when uh, Madhuri Dixit performs her breast pulses in her, and in that midriff, top uh midriff showing top in Choli Ke Piche in Kalnayak that a lot of people reenact in the nightclub uh she's she's using um the sort of bucolic sound of Rajasthan and to create a particular sexiness and and again it's Ila Arun's raw voice or what's described mm-hmm. as a raw voice that produ- that again produces the the regional <laughs> in that movement right. right so so and 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 we see white drag queens doing this all the time borrowing from the the kind of the bumpkin aesthetic in order to right. create a different kind of femininity in the nightclub too um so really i think you know when when we think about what femininity feels sexy feels feel makes us feel raw or, you know that it makes us feel like we're returning to some kind of rooted innate libidinal self mm-hmm. it's often the regional or the or or uh, um affiliated with caste or affiliate uh, affiliated with subordinate castes or um tribal folks um or uh or poor folks you know street street yeah. dance as well so so really um if we pay attention to where these particular lovely movements are coming from we also yeah. have to see who's been erased for us to borrow those movements and put them on the mainstream screen and see how they've come to our bodies right so yeah. if we actually trace that path of movement we see that the very people who bring us the very movements that bring us the most pleasure in the nightclub um are people who are not allowed into the nightclub who are not even imagined as being citizens of the nightclub um and and so again following dance following aesthetics becomes a way of doing political critique um and and all of that is functioning in the nightclub in ways that i think we don't always expect uh that's 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 really provocative and uh, it makes it you know it's like one of those explanations that once you point out it's just so obvious but like i hadn't seen uh the world that way till you put it in, into words and then i was like oh of course like but, this is uh, 
you know, I, I, it's not, but I'm not saying we shouldn't do those movements, you know, right, 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 right. And, I, and I think that that's really important is like, but I think that the nightclub is actually a place to engage and try on and, and mess up and, and have mm-hmm. fun and, and make worlds. And, and, and so I, I think I'm, I'm also trying to, to be capacious because, because the people I write about are in fact lonely and struggling and sad and, 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 right get a lot of pleasure out of trying on new movements to feel sexy in ways that the, the everyday world and especially their workplaces um, and, yeah. and sometimes their homes don't want them to. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, you know, speaking of people having fun, uh, this is something that you and I have talked about in the past. I've written about it elsewhere, but uh, there is this like link between fun and research or pleasure and research. And I'm, Sure, you've heard this a lot uh, that your project is, you know, like so much fun. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure it does get irritating at times because often this comment is made with a very uh, mocking tone that upholds some kind of false binary, you know, like, oh, what a fun project, as opposed to a serious one that is going to make a difference or is like overtly political or some such. Um, I was curious to know how you, as a researcher, think about fun and pleasure. In and off research? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. <laughs> um, you know, I think that in a lot of ways, the book is working very, 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 very hard <laughs> to tell you, look, politics are happening here. Right. <laughs> um, look, look at all this, there's all this movement and style and style and so much is happening, but look, here are the politics, right? And, and this is work that I felt like I had to do in order to give the book seriousness because I was worried that it would look too fun because, because people, people, when I tell people about the, about the project, they say exactly what you said. They say, oh, that, yeah. that, that must've been fun research. And and it's working on the assumption that fun, that research that research should not be fun, and that, but it's also imagine you know it's imagining the research researcher as not having a body. They're thinking of researchers as people who sit in archives and forget and and don't have bodies. They but but when you sit in archives, right? When you're sitting and working all day, you get body pains and aches. And, um, right. When you sit and write for hours, you're you know, your body is actually involved. And if, if we don't take the body seriously in research, whether it is, you know, we'll actually damage the very tools that allow us to enter, whether it's an archive or a nightclub, right? So I think we have to take our bodies really, really seriously um, in research and and con- consider the body's ple- pleasures and fun and, and restorative care for the body in, in all of those ways. Um but also sitting and reading some old ass documents is very fun. You know, right, yeah. you get to laugh at the old spellings of things. You get to be scandalized by the ways, by the gossip that people were sharing in letters. You know, there's a lot of joy yeah. there. Um, but, but yeah, I had a lot of fun and I, I also was body shamed often. And I was, um, I, people laughed at my drag and my femininity and told, told me I wasn't a good drag queen or, that, you know, and I felt undesirable a lot of the time, like going to the club is hard um, and it was work, right? And I, and I made myself, again, vulnerable in those ways. Um, but I had, to, I, I, and I say this early on in the book that I'm not ambivalent about nightlife, that it, it you know, it, it can do both, but it, it is actually a really magical place. 
Um, and I'm feeling its loss and I'm feeling its absence in yeah. social distancing land. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I, and so I, I fully embraced the fact that my research was fun. I, I, I want it to be fun. I want my next research project to be fun. I, I want to have a good time um, because this is yeah. my work and my career and I don't want to be bored by it. Yeah, I mean, that, that sounds fair enough, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I think uh, a lot of the conversation around uh, embodiment and research uh, emphasizes um, injury, pain, mm. harassment, um, uh, or suffering, right? And we are encouraged to write about those things, but I've, I'm yet to come across, I mean, apart from the uh, awesome special issue that... Uh, you've written for called Maza and yet to come across uh, much work on uh, fun as a method, I guess. And the way you talked about dancing um, and how it helped you make these um, or it enabled or made possible the fieldwork relationships was uh, was uh, a great start in that direction, I think. Uh, but uh, thanks for being candid and honest through the book. I really appreciate it. <laughs> it was, as they put it, um, hashtag goals. Um, <laughs> right. You know, and I, again, it didn't, it, it, it wasn't, I didn't feel, in writing, I didn't feel like I was performing my vulnerability and exposing myself. I mean, this was just really um, the gift that other people had given me. You know, they, they taught, being in the field taught me a lot about how my body moves and what I'm conscious of or not. So it was, it was really, it was field work. It wasn't just these moments of me pouring myself out in order to be vulnerable. It really was just part of the dialogue that was, was emerging with the, me and the, the folks I was with. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I think that comes across uh, really clearly. Um, and okay, well, this has been such a great conversation, but before I let you go, um, I would love for all of us to know more about what you're, working on currently and what we can expect to read by you in the near future? Yes. Um, so I am working with two very amazing colleagues, Kemi Adeyemi and Ramon Rivera Cervera. We've been editing an anthology titled Queer Nightlife, and it should be coming out next year from University of Michigan Press. And the the content in it is just beautiful. Um, it centers... Uh, non-Western and uh, a Black Indigenous POC uh, takes on nightlife all over the world, all over the U.S. Um, and, and North America, uh, and, and is organized in the shape of the night. So we start with getting ready for the night and then inside the club and on the stage at the show and then after the night. So the, the, the chapters are arranged to follow the trajectory of the night. So that's the Queer Nightlife Anthology. I'm currently working on a short book called Decolonized Drag um, that is coming out from Warscapes that thinks about how, how drag has been um, sort of uh, folded into capitalist, uh, uh, has been occupied by, whi- by whiteness, ca- uh, capitalism, and, how, and strategies for reimagining drag in other ways um, in unexpected places and then my new my next monograph that I'm trying to invent and make uh, comes from my obsession with being an auntie and all my own aunties and it's called ontologies queer aesthetics and South Asian aunties and um, that's my next new exciting venture that um, still feels nebulous but very exciting nonetheless 
Yeah, and um, for everyone listening, please do follow the Instagram account Ontologies for uh, uh, some great auntie curation. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all, uh, all right, Kareem. Yeah, you wanted to say something? Yeah, I think you can expect lots of Kamala Harris auntie memes coming. <laughs> They've started already, and uh, I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, uh, on that note, uh, we'll let you go. But thanks again for taking time out to do this. Um, it was such a, a great book to read, and I'm sure it's going to do really, really well. So again, congratulations and all the best uh, with whatever you're doing next. Thank you.